discussion and chats, and I hope if you're new, people are getting to know you and you're feeling part of the family. Um, let me introduce Phil to you. If you don't know Phil, he's going to be teaching to us from the Bible. Um, as you heard from the Ashburnham video, we, we are privileged to be part of a wider family of churches, uh, which is called New Ground. Uh, and Phil not only leads the everyday group of churches that um, we're great friends with, he also is part of the New Ground leadership team. Uh, and so one of the great benefits we get of being part of New Ground is not just great events and camping and, and, uh, and Ashburnham type things. We also get what the Bible might call apostolic oversight. In other words, people who are gifted to, to oversee and to speak into and to help churches. And Phil really plays that role uh, brilliantly on behalf of New Ground. Uh, he's a great friend of mine. Him and Ruth are great friends of mine and Caroline's. And uh, you may not have always seen lots of him, but I can promise you his wisdom and his input and his prayers have been a massive part of, of our church and the kind of new season uh, of flourishing that we're in. So you're going to really enjoy his teaching. Uh, if you haven't enjoyed his teaching before, you can find out more about him with the various books that he's written. Um, this is going to sound really cheesy and schmaltzy and a little bit needy, but I've actually just ordered all of his commentaries uh, for The Office uh, this week, not because he's preaching here today, but because they're super helpful. They really are. So every um, book of the Bible, you can, ha- you can get some of Phil's books to help you with that, and they'll be really, really helpful to help you to, to get into the Bible. So let's welcome Phil this morning. Hi, everyone. Hey, it's really great to be here with you. It's really funny when Philip says, if you've not enjoyed Phil's teaching before, <laughs> in other words, you've heard Phil's teaching before, but you've never, not enjoyed it before, it's great to be with you. Um, yeah, if you don't know me, I'm Phil. I'm looking around, I know probably about half of you. My name's Phil, Phil Moore. Um, as Philip says, been friends with this church for years and years and years. I remember coming to preach at King's Church Kingston when you were in another, it was in a school somewhere. This must have been like early 2000s, I reckon, uh, and uh, I've known you guys for ages, spend quite a bit of time with the pastors who lead King's Church, and great to be with you today. Thank you for having me. Um, my, my wife and my kids haven't come today because they tell embarrassing stories about me whenever I let them come. So I said to them, I think you ought to go somewhere else today because I've had enough. And probably their, fa- their favourite embarrassing story about dad is about the time we went for a walk up a mountain, six of us, and five came down the mountain, and Dad kind of got lost. It was, it was a mountain in France. We climbed to the top. You know, I said to the family, you know, just go on down. I'll be down soon. And uh, it really wasn't that soon, to be honest. And um, I was partway down the mountain on my own thinking, this really doesn't look very familiar. Is this just me? Or, you know, am I, have I just got a really bad memory? And I'm going down the mountain. And the further I go down the mountain, the more I'm thinking this really doesn't look like the mountain I climbed up. And I did the Lord of the Rings thing, you know, they're doing The Hobbit. I climbed an oak, I was really proud of myself. I climbed to the top of a tree so that I could look out over the trees to see where I was, did me no good whatsoever. And what, ter- what it turns out had happened was I'd climbed the mountain and I'd gone down the mountain on the opposite side of the mountain. And this is like a mountain in France. There was absolutely no one around. For two hours, I am walking on my own, trying to find my own way back to where my car was, to where my family was. And you're thinking, why didn't you use your phone? I've got no juice in my phone. It's just an absolute disaster. And after about two hours, I make it to the bottom of the mountain, on the wrong side of the mountain. And I think to myself, how on earth am I going to get back to my family and to my car? And I came across this secluded house. And fortunately, there was someone there. And I'd, I'd like ripped my trousers on some barbed wire. This is why I didn't let my family come. They tell the story even worse. You think it sounds bad, you should hear the way they tell it. Um, 
like I'd ripped my trousers on barbed wire. I was dirty. I was smelly. And basically, I turned up on this random Frenchman's front doorstep and basically said to him, I have no idea where I am, but I can tell you where my car was. Please, will you give me a lift back to my car? And he did. And so we're driving in the car um, from, and I was literally, I was about three or four miles away from where I ought to be. And this wonderful French person, basically to get me off his property, gives me a lift back to where I was trying to go. And as we're walking along, I start telling him about Jesus. And as I'm talking to him about Jesus in the car, and I'm telling him the way to God, I am just thinking to myself, I can't even find the way back to my car. Who am I to try and tell this guy how to find his way to God? And that's what I want to talk about today. I really felt, um, as I was prepping for coming to be with you guys this morning, I really felt God um, wanting to bring some, some help to you, to us, about the fact we talk as Christians, those of us that are Christians, about being once we were lost, but now we are found. For my experience of the Christian life is, those of us that are found spend quite a lot of time as if we're lost. God, what should I do next? Where should I go? I've got this difficult choice to make. You know, this really wasn't staged. I am friends with Emeka, but we didn't collaborate. I, was not, I didn't realize that Emeka was going to bring this thing about God guiding you about buildings and other stuff this year. We're friends, but this was not staged. We have not spoken to one another for a couple of weeks. No, we spend a lot of time even as churches wondering what's the right thing for us to do, don't we? And um, I really wanted to just try and help you today with this whole thing of what does it really mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to hear God speak to you? Because my experience as a Christian has been a lot of the time, even though you are found spiritually, you can still feel a bit like me on the mountain trying to find your way to where God's trying to lead you. And if you can identify with that in any aspect of your life, you're going to find this helpful. Um, it sounds as though this may help you as a church in terms of buildings and future and 25 years and what do the next 25 years hold together. I think maybe, you know, every time you gather as a church, there's always people who don't yet know God. I think this is just even helpful in terms of laying out what does it mean to follow Jesus? You know, lots of people say to you, you should follow Jesus. But don't really explain what that means. And so maybe I can help you today by just helping you to understand this question. How do we actually hear what God wants to say to us? I was chatting with a friend of mine the other day. Um, he's moved away from London, but he was working in London a particular day. He said, can we meet up? We met up in one of the restaurants in Waterloo Station. And we're sitting outside Carluccio's upstairs in Waterloo Station. And we, he, he's basically seeking my help around... How does, I've got a really tough decision to make. I don't know how to make the decision. I essentially get one of the Carluccio serviettes and start scribbling on it. And maybe we'll just do that a little bit together. Rather than it be a serviette, which would be really hard for you to see, I've put a few things on the screen. I want to basically try and help you to understand from Acts chapter 16. Just going to read a few verses. If you've got a Bible, you might want to turn to it. Acts 16, 4 to 10. And I'm probably going to read just like one or two verses at a time. So it'll be worth you having it open so you can follow the logical flow of what happens. But this is just an example of the Apostle Paul and his friends trying to hear God speak to them them 
And uh, as, as we just look at these verses together, I think God's really going to help you. I met with someone just this week. Uh, he's having a midlife crisis. And he's like, oh, I've got, you know, I'm such and such an age. And you know, I had all these dreams. And what does God want me to do? And maybe I should change my job. And I, I think if we're honest with one another, we spend more of our lives as Christians struggling to hear God's voice than we like to let on. And I actually think the, these verses, I find, are just some of the best verses in the Bible for teaching us how to hear God guiding us. So I am pretty sure that this is really going to help you. And so let me start reading with the first uh, of these verses we're going to look at. Acts 16, 4 to 10. As Paul and his team traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. The context here is Acts chapter 16. If you don't know the book of Acts very well, it's the first 30 years of church history. And this is what is known as the beginning of what's known as the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey. Okay? So he's trying to hear God speak to him about what he should be doing, where he should be going, and this is about as spiritual an event as you get. I don't know. I haven't checked in the back of my Bible. But this is Paul's second missionary journey, which means... Um, no, I don't think my Bible's one of them. Has anyone here got a map of Paul's journeys in the back of their Bible? Yeah? A couple of people. This is so spiritual, you might even have a map of this journey in the back of your Bible. My Bible at home does. This one doesn't. Um, this is like a spiritual... This is about as spiritual as it gets. And yet... The way God guides Paul in these verses is incredibly practical. And I'm going to try and help you to see these five principles of how God guides us. They'll help you as you're trying to follow God. They'll help you as a church as you're trying to follow God. They'll help you if you're even considering giving your life to God. They'll help you to understand what it looks like. And the first thing is just ultra practical. It says, Paul and his team traveled from town to town and they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles. For us, we've got a whole book of the decisions reached by the apostles. The first point that's going to come up there, I've got a little notepad there, and there are five points, but I reckon on the whole first page, I just want to write the question, what does the Bible say? Because it's really interesting, the Apostle Paul wrote parts of the Bible. You would have thought if anybody would not have to ask this question, it's the Apostle Paul. And yet, the first thing it says that Paul and his team did is they went from place to place delivering the decisions that had already been reached by the Apostles. In other words, they didn't start from zero. They had the Word of God. And for me, I think a lot of the problems that we, that we kind of butt our heads into when it comes to hearing God guide us are basically just caused by neglect of reading the Bible. You see, the Bible is full of principles. It will literally answer some of your questions outright and other questions that it doesn't answer outright. It gives you like this framework by which you can answer many of the other questions. So this is one of five things, but I think it needs to take up the first page of these two pages because everything else flows from it. It's like, um, did I marry the right person? I'm a pastor, so I get to talk to people about all sorts of things. This is quite a common question people ask. Did I marry the right person? Or sometimes it's actually asked, did I marry the wrong person? Actually, when you read scripture, when you read the word of God, it actually answers that question for you. It basically says, if you married them, then you married the right person. It says in Malachi 2.16, God says, I hate divorce. 
That doesn't mean that God can't turn your life around if you've been divorced. Doesn't mean that God's really insensitive about the pain of divorce. Because it also says in the book of Isaiah, uh, God says, uh, he talks to Israel and he says, I married you and it's like you've divorced me. So God knows what it's like to be the victim of a horrible divorce. He's not having a go at you if you are divorced. But if you're married and you're thinking, did I marry the right person? Actually, the Bible tells you you did. Because you stood not just in front of your loved one, you stood in front of God and you gave these vows. And God says, I take those vows seriously and the vows you make to me, I will enable you to fulfill. It's amazing the number of couples that I and the other pastors I work with have met with where they've said, our our marriage is over. But actually when you sit with them and you help them through the word of God, you find that the same God who healed lepers of leprosy and gave them clean skin again, who raised the dead to life, who, uh, who went to the blind, who couldn't see and enabled them to see again. It's amazing how that God, before whom we make our wedding vows, enables eyes to be opened to find someone attractive again. Who can take uh, you know, the, the disappointment and the, the disagreements of marriage away and restore, to get rid of the bitterness, which is kind of like leprosy. It eats away and destroys everything. How the God who makes us these promises is able to restore even the most leprous of marriages. It's amazing when you read the word of God. It actually gives you, gives you answers like, should I marry this person? Well, it doesn't say that. If you are waiting for the verse that says, go and marry Keith, you will be reading this book for a long time. <laughs> but the Bible gives you these principles by which you can work out where he's leading you. Like Proverbs 5 verse 18 says, may you be happy in the wife of your youth. In other words, she's meant to make you feel happy. He's meant to make you feel happy. If he makes you feel unhappy while you're still dating, he isn't going to make you feel happy after he's finished trying to charm you into marry him. If you're not happy, it says rejoice in the wife of your youth. Of course you were rejoicing her in your, in your youth. It's like the Bible's just really practical. It says, does she make you happy? Does he make you happy? It asks questions like um, 1 Corinthians 7, 39. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. So it says two things there. It says, if you're separated, but not yet divorced, you're bound to your husband or your wife. You're not even, you shouldn't even be dating anyone, you're still married. But if you are free to marry, you're free to marry anyone you want. In other words, sometimes God says, I'm not gonna guide you who to marry, I've given you eyes, I've given you a heart, I've given you emotions. You can marry anyone you wish. That's a hard thing. I think sometimes when it comes to God's guidance, what we're actually asking is, God, please take my free will away from me. And actually what God does is he says, no, I gave you free will, and this is part of the fun. Jesus didn't say, I will give you the way. He says, I am the way. In other words, Jesus says, hang out with me. Let's spend time together. Let's have a friendship together. And as we hang out together, you will, know, you will know the way because you know me. So Paul says, marry anyone you wish. The only proviso is they must be in the Lord. In other words, don't marry a non-believer. It's like Paul's basically saying, if you marry a non-believer, you've really only got three choices. You're, you're trying to follow Jesus. He or she isn't. So you've got the choice where you marry, but you're headed in opposite directions. And if you've ever tried to run a three-legged race in opposite directions, you've probably got the broken ankle to remind you of how difficult that is. Or 
you're going in opposite directions, and because you marry, you go more in his or her direction. Well, that's just disaster, isn't it? To exchange your relationship with God for a relationship with someone else. It's idolatry. Uh, Or you have the option of being really red hot on fire for God, as they are not, and pretending, like hiding that big part of your life from your husband or your wife. It's just a nightmare in a marriage where the thing that's most precious to you is the very thing you can't talk to them about. And so Paul says, you're free to marry anyone you want, but whatever you do, don't marry someone who isn't in the Lord. And sometimes people say, well, we're only dating. Maybe he or she's going to become a Christian. And obviously that does happen sometimes. God's really good. But I I, I just think the, the, the thrust of 1 Corinthians 7 is if you're going out and you're basically saying, I can't marry you unless you give your life to Jesus, It's kind of emotional blackmail. This is a really great relationship, but if you want it to go any further, you're going to have to convert to Jesus. Far better to say, let's be friends. And if you decide you want to follow Jesus, I'd love to follow him with you. But let's not, let's not load our relationship with this pressure of you have, to, you, know, you have to undergo a religious conversion for us to move to the next level. This is really helpful, isn't it? The Bible is just full of practical wisdom. Paul, it says, went round on the second missionary journey, basically explaining to people what the apostles had written down. It's amazing. It's like, I think one of the reasons we struggle with this whole question of how do I hear God? It's like people say to me, God's really hard to hear. I don't think he is. I don't think God's hard to hear. I think God's hard to listen to, which is slightly different. It's like, actually, God's word is actually really quite straightforward sometimes, but it's painful because it doesn't always say what we want to do. This morning, as I was reading the Bible before coming out, I read Luke 11, verse 32, which says, 11.42 rather. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you pay 10% of everything you get to God and yet you don't pursue justice and love. You should have paid the 10% and pursue justice and love. See, I don't like that because God's basically saying that money that you earn isn't just yours. You need to give and give generously. In fact, I haven't got there yet in my Bible readings, but I'm reading through Luke, so I'm going to get there. Luke chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. There's this poor widow. She's only got like two small coins to live on. And she goes to the temple offering basket, and she puts both of them in. And I'm expecting Jesus to be compassionate, right? I'm expecting Jesus to run over the temple courtyards and rugby tackle her and say, love, I don't need your money. Keep it to yourself. It's all right. But he doesn't. He says to his disciples, do you see this woman? Everyone else is giving more money than her. She's giving hardly anything, but it's all she's got. And Jesus essentially says to his disciples, what matters isn't how much you give. It's how much you've got left over at the end. In other words, if you live in an affluent part of the world like southwest London, God probably isn't saying, can you manage to spare 10%? He's saying, there is need all over the world. For the amount of money that we spend on our double glazing... We could support family after family in the developing world for a year. It's like that second or third holiday that we take in a year. I'm not assuming you do. I'm just kind of exaggerating it. But actually, some of the choices we make, which make our lives that tiny bit better, could literally save life in the rest of the world. So I I think actually following Jesus isn't as hard as we make out. Hearing God is not that difficult. Listening to God is slightly harder. Do you get what I'm saying? This is like in... in, um, in the Bible, God actually, uh, actually answers some of our questions. And where he doesn't, it's like he lays down the train tracks 
from which we can travel to all the other answers that he wants to give us. It's like, um, even just like the thing we just talked about in terms of dating. It's like, God, who do you want me to marry? Well, God does lay down some train tracks. He says, marry whoever you want. But he says in 1 Peter 3, a woman's beauty shouldn't come from outward adornment, such as braided hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, and fine clothes. Instead, it should be the beauty of their inner self, the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight, and which never fades. It's like Peter's really practical. He's an old guy. He say, you can marry the most beautiful woman in the world. She will not be in 30 years' time. <laughs> Bit harsh, Peter. Uh, <laughs> but true. He says, no, 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 one of the reasons why we don't find the right person is because she doesn't look like the billboard posters of the models, but actually true beauty's on the inside. And it flips the other way. Um, sometimes, you know, we're, we're like, no, but I want, I want him to look really hunky. But 1 Samuel 16, 7, God says to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height. The Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's amazing, isn't it? It's like God's basically saying to us, you can marry anyone you want, but don't get caught up in the stuff that the world pursues. The world pursues beauty which doesn't last, but a beautiful character lasts for life. It's just really helpful. And it's really helpful as we're trying as Christians to tell the world around us the benefits of following Jesus. Sometimes we think, why would I share Jesus with my work colleagues? They seem so happy. They seem like they've got it all together. Do you know, divine guidance is one of the biggest reasons to call non-believers to follow him. It's like the God who made the whole universe, the God who designed like the ecosystem of the universe wants to talk to us and guide us. I've been following Jesus for 25 years now. I can have uh, my celebration with you on April the 7th, around the same time King's Church Kingston was beginning, my life with God was beginning. And I can honestly tell you, there have been times when following God has been incredibly painful because it wasn't what I wanted to do. But there's never been a single time where I've looked back and said, God, you were wrong and I was right. <laughs> been quite a few times when I haven't gone God's way and I've learned the hard way he was right and I was wrong. It's like, this is one of the great things that we're to say to those who don't yet know God. The God of the universe who designed this incredibly exquisite universe, the more you discover about science, the more you think God is so awesomely wise. Part of what we're trying to say to people is you can get to know God's will for your life by asking, what does the Bible actually say? Let me move on to the second one. Uh, The first one was the main one, but I've got four others that I'll go through quickly. Um, It carries on. Can you just put it back one slide? No, back one slide. There we go. Paul and his companions, this is the next verse. Paul and his companions traveled throughout Phrygia and Galatia. Now, you might not know much about first century Turkish history, so you can be forgiven for that. This map might not even help you very much. But what I love about this is that it's talking about that God, the fact that God actually guides us a lot of the time just through common sense. The first missionary journey begins with um, Paul and Barnabas being called in Acts 13 to go to the whole of the, the whole of the unevangelized world and to tell them about Jesus. And it doesn't tell them where to go. The Holy Spirit turns up at one of their prayer meetings and says, literally, Acts 13 verse 2, set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas, to the work for which I've called them to do, full stop. And if I'm Paul or Barnabas, I'm thinking, well, Holy Spirit, could you not have carried on a bit? Could you not have told us where? You know, where do we go next? Nothing. Instead, this is what it seems to be like, Barnabas comes from Cyprus and um, 
Paul comes from Cilicia and Galatia, which is like the, uh, the, the southern tip of Turkey that you saw behind me. Guess where the first missionary journey is? Cyprus and Cilicia and Galatia. It's like they look at each other and go, okay, where are we going to go? And Barnabas is like, well, I speak the language in Cyprus. I've got loads of friends there. And Paul says, great, I speak the language in Turkey. I've got loads of friends there. And they look at each other and go, first missionary journey it is. I think sometimes we can make it a little bit overcomplicated. You know, I do think sometimes when we're saying, God, guide me, what we're meaning is, God, I'm too scared to make a decision myself. And actually, if you're full of the Holy Spirit, if you know God, he, he enables you to use your common sense just to make some good decisions. It says in Deuteronomy 32, verse 29, if only they were, they were wise that they would consider the future. If only they were wise that they would consider. It's like God wants you to consider. He's given you a brain for a reason. Sometimes people that I'm chatting with, they're saying, I, I really need God to guide me. And I, I just look at them and I think, God has guided you. He's given you a brain. People say, I don't know where to serve God in church. Should it be the worship band? Should it be serving in the kids' work? Should it be sitting at the back with a computer making it all happen? Should I be a life group leader? If only an angel would appear to me and tell me. I just feel like saying to them, are you any good at playing the guitar? No. Well, let me be your angel. (laughs) Can you hang out with kids without getting really cross and hitting them? Great. Let me be your angel. Have you got a house? Do you like people? Do you love God? Are you willing to be hospitable? Could you invest your life in 10 other people? Great, let me be your angel. You actually don't need God to guide you on a lot of stuff. You just need to look at yourself and take a sober look at yourself and say, yeah, actually I'm going to get on with it. In, in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 1, Paul says literally in the Greek language, I judged within myself that I shouldn't come and see you. That's Paul's excuse for not visiting Corinth. I judged within myself that I shouldn't. I I think sometimes we need to judge within ourselves whether we should or whether we shouldn't. I find like um, it's really easy for me to steer my car when I'm driving it down the road. It's really hard for me to steer my car when it's sitting in my driveway. And I think sometimes we sit in the driveway spiritually. God, guide me. What do you want me to do? Just get driving somewhere and he'll find it easier to guide you. If you want to find out your ministry and God's plan for your life, try a load of stuff and God will guide you as you go. If you want to know, uh, you know, what's our will as a church, what's God's will for us as a church? Well, Hebrews 13 verse 17 says, Obey your leaders, submit to their authority, They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them, so their work will be a joy, not a burden. For why would that be of any advantage to you if it was a burden? So that's your starting point. You think, well, God's going to guide us. The main way he's going to guide us is actually we've got pastors of King's Church Kingston. And we're going to trust that they're seeking God. And we're going to follow them. And we're going to ask them questions because common sense is all right. If Philip stands up and says, I had this great vision, it's all right to say, great. Glad to hear about the vision. Can I ask you a few questions? That's all right. It's common sense. But your starting point is I'm going to trust my leaders. I'm going to trust common sense. I'm going to trust God to guide us. Sometimes we find it hard to trust leaders, which is why that verse carries on. It says, obey your leaders and pray for them, which is also pretty good advice as well. Sometimes you think, I just think that they've got it wrong. That's partly why this church is part of new ground. You can actually talk to me. I'm not that hard to get hold of. I'm friends with many of you on Facebook. You can actually say, um, this is going on. Uh, 
I'm a bit confused. Can I talk to you? You've actually got someone to talk to outside of the church. It's like, this is how we hear God speak to us. What does the Bible say? What does common sense say? Third thing, next verse. In in verse 6, it says, Paul and his companions traveled throughout Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. What does that mean, having been kept by the Holy Spirit? Well, the first thing it means is common sense isn't enough because Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the ancient world and it was the largest city in the whole of Turkey and it was the capital of the province of Asia. So Paul Paul is basically thinking, well, logic says I should go to Ephesus. And the Holy Spirit says, great, you've got the Bible and you've got common sense, but it's not enough. See, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, doesn't actually explain to us what God does to make it clear that they shouldn't be going to Ephesus. Um, but that's partly because he told us back in Acts 14, verse 27, God opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. He uses that kind of language. God opened a door of faith. Paul uses that language, 1 Corinthians 16, 8 to 9. I'm staying in Ephesus, he gets there eventually, because a great door for effective work has suddenly opened to us. He prays in Colossians 4, 3, that God may open a door for our message. This principle of open and shut doors is a little bit frustrating. Because sometimes you want to do something and God slams the door shut. I mean, you had that for years. Those of you that have been part of Everyday, uh, Everyday Kingston, those who've been part of King's Church Kingston for years and years, you remember when you were trying to get the bingo hall for all those years? And obviously you know some of the building work that's going on at the bingo hall now. And I bet the more you know about it, the more you're thinking, I'm glad God shut the door on that one. But it's painful at the time. I remember walking through it with you thinking, why won't God open the door? Sometimes God just shuts the door because it's his best way of stopping us from making a bad decision. My mate Nathan was trying to leave his job. He really hated his job. He'd had enough of his job. He had a really great CV, graphic designer. Um, you know, everything about my, he's a good people person, one of the top salesmen in his graphic design team, starts applying for other jobs for a whole year the door just slammed shut in his face. Every interview he went for didn't succeed. He was like, Phil, I don't understand. I'm, I think I'm quite well qualified. I, I think the interviews are going well. But every time there's an opportunity to get a new job, the door slammed shut in my face. I just don't understand it. And so we're just praying, God, please will you guide us. And during that year that he was stuck in the job he didn't really want to have, his friend, a non-believing friend at, at work, suddenly got cancer and uh, reached out to Nathan because he was you know, one of the most loving people in the office. Realized that Nathan was a guy with faith. Started talking to Nathan about what happens after you die. Nathan prayed for him to be healed from cancer. He wasn't healed from cancer. He did go on to die during that year. Nathan got to help him on his deathbed before he died. Nathan led him to salvation during that year. Nathan managed to talk to this man's friends and family and explain to them something what was going on, pray and support them. When the man was, uh, had his funeral, his work colleague, Nathan was the guy that led the funeral and gave the message before they cremated the body. And almost immediately after the funeral, Nathan applied for a job and got it straight away. And he looked back on it and he said, you know, because my eyes were fixed on me, I thought, what is God playing at? But looking back, God clearly shut the doors to keep me there for the sake of that man, for the sake of that man's family. It's like we've got to get um, this whole theme throughout the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 2.12 
Paul says, the Lord has opened a door for me. It's not enough. There are other ways in which God chooses to guide us. But we ask ourselves, what does the Bible say? What does common sense say? And then we get moving and we trust that God's going to shut some doors. So even like talking about buildings, uh, which wasn't particularly what I wanted to talk about today, but since Emeka mentioned it, well, what do you do? You say, what does the Bible say about whether King's Church Kingston should have a building? Well, the Bible doesn't seem to talk about churches having buildings. So maybe we shouldn't have a building. It's unbiblical. Well, it says that the believers used to meet in the temple courts. So it's actually biblical for Christian believers to have a place where they can meet together. And in Israel, they can do it in the courtyards because it hardly ever rains. In Kingston, you might need a roof. And common sense says, actually, for the past 25 years, King's Church Kingston has had a building. It's just it's been one that you've rented. So the choice is not, should you have a building? The choice is, should you rent a building or buy a building? And then you get going, thinking, well, clearly, buying might enable us to have more of an impact on this community than renting. There's something about having a visible presence, isn't there? There's something about setting up, setting down, that kind of makes you invisible throughout the week. There's something about having a place where people can come. We know this. It's like 2,000 years of church history have taught us that actually having a permanent presence in a town is not a bad thing, right? And so you get going. And you think, is it this? Well, let's push on that door and see if it opens. And if it shuts, we don't say, well, God is not with us. We say, God is with us, and he shut that door. It's helpful. Here's the fourth one of the five. Read the next verse. Paul and his companions traveled throughout Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia. This is in the northwest part of Turkey now. But the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. All right, this is getting even harder to understand. A minute ago, the Holy Spirit wouldn't stop them. Now it's the spirit of Jesus won't, won't allow them to. What this is talking about is sometimes there will be like special revelations that God gives to us. Emeka's right when he says we should be expecting God to bring prophecy this year. God to guide us in supernatural ways. I've had some of these. But to be honest, they've been about the big things in life, and they've been infrequent. If you're expecting God to guide you daily by special revelations, you need to go home, get a dictionary, and look up the word special. It means not every day. This is like not the normal way God guides us, but occasionally there's big decisions. I was, um, I was about to get into a relationship with a girl years ago. And um, I was praying about, is this right? It was totally wrong, but you know what it's like at the time. And I had this special revelation in which I had this vision in which God really told me in no uncertain terms that she wasn't right for me. So sometimes you get a special revelation. Sometimes you're as stubborn as me and you need them. Uh, like People say to me, oh, I get revelations from God all the time. I think you must be really disobedient. Because the times I get special revelations is where I wouldn't obey God the other ways. And sometimes in his kindness, God says, you are so stubborn. I'm going to make it really easy for you. So people get really puffed up about all these great revelations they've had. I think, the, I think often the more of these you need, the less likely you are to follow God without them. So this was like not so much guidance who to marry as who definitely not to marry. And it was useful and God was right, even though it was painful at the time. I remember sitting under a tree praying for an afternoon about should I move house to a different part of the world and I it's not it wasn't so much a special revelation so much as the fact that as I prayed I got incredible peace about one course of action 
and I just started feeling uneasy about another course of action. Is that a special revelation? Yeah. It's the spirit of Jesus not allowing me to go one way, but guiding me to go another. Um, when we moved to London, I had a special revelation. Whilst on right move, it was that houses are too expensive around here. That was a, no, no, that was the normal revelation. Really weirdly, this doesn't happen to me all the time by any means, but I was just looking at a particular house, and God said, that's the house you're going to give, I'm going to give you. And it was under offer to someone else, and there was no way we were going to get it. And I phoned the estate agent and said, oh, I was just wondering about this house. And he said, well, someone else is buying it. Please leave me alone. And I phoned back a second time, and he said, Mr. Moore, I'll take your number, but please never ring me again. Um, and then I phoned up another agent, and I said, well, I'm going to, can I have a look at some of your houses, please? And I, again, I honestly felt the Holy Spirit say to me on the inside, I've already told you what house I'm going to give you. How dare you look at other houses? So I, I only ever looked at one house in London because uh, on the day that I signed the thing that I was going to move to London, literally that weekend, the phone rang and it was the agent. He was like, Mr. Moore, I took your number to try and get rid of you, but something weird has happened. Would you like to view that house? So it was the only house I ever viewed. Sometimes God guides you like that, but special revelation. Finally, and even then, the fifth way. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. This is really important because it basically means it's the first time the Christian gospel goes from Asia into Europe. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Two big words in that verse, and then I'll finish off. First one is we, and second one is concluding. Okay, last slide. Christian friends. See, if I were Paul, I'd have this vision of this man of Macedonia, and I would come down for breakfast, and I would pour myself some Cheerios, and then I would say to Luke and Timothy and the other people in the team, guys, it's okay. We've been struggling to find out where we should go. I've had a dream of a man of Macedonia. Guys, just so you know, we're off to Greece. There wouldn't have been very much we in it. It would have all have been I. I've had a dream. And I think my friends would have said to me, well, thank you, Martin Luther, um, Martin Luther King. But um, I think we want to hear God for ourselves. What's really fascinating to me is that Paul has this amazing revelation of a man of Macedonia. And it says, we concluded that God was calling us to go to Greece. It's like, oh, wow. So the apostle Paul didn't make decisions on his own. He asked Luke and Timothy and his other team members. He weighed it together. They obviously talked about it together. And this word concluded, it's a really fascinating word. In the Greek language, it's sumbibazdo, which means to knit together. It's the kind of thing my mother-in-law would think is a really good biblical word. For me, it doesn't really feel like what I imagine the Apostle Paul doing. But what he's saying is, with Christian friends, you should knit together what God's saying. What does the Bible say? What does common sense say? What does open and shut doors say? What does special revelation say? What do we as friends together say? And you knit it together and you come to a conclusion together. The guy I'm meeting at Carluccio is putting this on the, on the serviette together. He basically says to me, I should never have done this thing. I should never have moved to this place. I should never have taken this job. And to his credit, he basically just humbly said, we made the decision on our own. We weren't accountable to any of our Christian friends. I didn't talk to you before I did it, Phil. I made a mistake. Can I move back? And I just admired his humility. The truth is, most of the time when we go wrong, 
is because we try and do things in isolation. So where should you, where or if should you buy somewhere as a church? Well, Philip is not going to get out of the shower and get a sudden special revelation and come to a church meeting and say, guys, I know we should buy, bum, bum, bum. You'll decide it together. There's something about the eldership team gathering together and knitting together what's God saying. There's something about actually as a church family having a chance to speak into that. And it flips both ways. For you with your own life, so easy for us to come to church and say, well, who are they to tell me what to do? Well, they're your brothers and sisters in Christ. They're people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. They are the people that God has asked you to live your Christian life with. That's, that's who they are. Obviously, you could ignore their advice, but it's not going to go well for you. The reason God calls us to follow him together is because none of us hears him perfectly on our own. But together, we can hear God really well. Does that make sense? So, this is what I've been saying to my friend with his midlife crisis. This is what I was saying to my friend in Carlitos. It's what I would say to you as a church. It's what I'd say to you as an individual. If you're not yet following Jesus and you're thinking, what would it mean for me to follow Jesus? This is what it means. It means saying, God, I'm not going to go my own way. I'm going to go your way. Every day, my big question is not going to be what seems good to me. My big question is going to be, God, where are you leading me? And the main way I'm going to find that out is I'm going to read the Bible. And I'm going to ask myself, what does the Bible say? Because it says a lot. It's a really long book. And it's really helpful. And then from that, I'm going to say, well, okay, I've read the Bible Uh, And I read the Bible regularly, and therefore my common sense is not just human common sense, it's divinely enlightened common sense. I can push on a few doors, trusting God that he's big enough to shut them if they're not right. It may be that I'll receive a prophecy or a special revelation, but I will not make decisions based on that alone. I will knit together with all the other things that's going on, and I will live my life in the open with my Christian friends. Around this room, there's loads of decisions being made. Jobs, relationships, buildings, house moves, day-to-day decisions of discipleship. Should I be living this way? Should I be living that way? This is what it means for us to follow Jesus together. And it's really exciting. Jesus didn't say, I will give you the way. He said, I am the way. And therefore, we as Christians should be the most found people in the world. We should be the most guided people in the world. We should be the most secure people in the world because together, As we live our lives in the open together, we can trust God to guide us in these five ways. And so I want to pray for you as I end this message. And I want to pray for you as a church. And then maybe we'll have a chance to respond as Philip leads us as well. Lord, this is like discipleship 101. And yet so many of us miss it. And uh, I just want to pray, Lord, that that this will be a really helpful foundation for living life together. I want to pray for every person here is yet to give their life to you. I pray, Lord, that this will be the way they start living their life as they surrender everything to you. I pray, Lord, that, that their decision, should I give my life to Jesus, would not be about what they have to give up. It would be about the amazing thing that they will inherit, that they can hear God guiding them. I pray for every Christian. You know, I've talked about different discipleship issues. Uh, Lord, there's probably people who are feeling conviction even now. I pray, Lord, that you will just help each one of us to follow you with, in spirit and in truth, with integrity, not just saying the words, but living a life of discipleship. And I pray for King's Church Kingston. I thank you for 25 years of you guiding us. And I want to pray for these next five years, these next 10 years, 
Lord, guide King's Church Kingston really clearly. Shut doors that they mustn't go through. Open doors they must go through. Give them a unity to follow leaders, but to ask common sense questions, to listen to special revelation, to make the decision together as a, as a family rather than one or two people making it on their own. I pray, Lord, that you will lead King's Church Kingston. It is called King's Church because it proclaims that you are king. And therefore, I pray, lead on, mighty king, and show us the way to go. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.